Hello and welcome to Smart Pill, a podcast where each episode delivers concentrated knowledge on one specific topic. The podcast is brought to you by the WHRO Emerging Leaders Board, a diverse group of young professionals who are passionate about bringing public media to a millennial generation. I'm your host, Ryan McIntyre. In this episode, sea level rise. Experts are saying that Hampton Roads is headed for catastrophe, so we wanted to find out why is sea level rise such a danger in our area. It's an, a unique problem that we have and that we're sinking faster than the sea is rising. Why should you care? Water knows no political or jurisdictional boundaries. And as an individual, what can you do about it? Understand how your, your neighborhood is vulnerable, how your house might be vulnerable. We'll be covering all of that and more. So hey, it's time to take your smart pill. I'm joined today by Mike Wallen, Professor of Geography at Odenland University. Mary Carson Stiff, Director of Policy at Wetlands Watch. Ben McFarland, Senior Planner with the Hampton Roads Planning District Commission. All right, Michael, Ben, Mary Carson, welcome to the show. I want to start off by asking each of you to weigh in on what is it that's driving sea level rise in the most basic sense? And Mary, let's start with you. The largest driver of sea level rise in Hampton Roads is actually subsidence. Um, Subsidence is contributing just about two inches more than actual sea level rise. Um, And so for our region, it's a unique problem that we have and that we're sinking faster than the sea is rising. And so subsidence for some of our listeners, that is? That's the land actually sinking. And that is occurring because of groundwater withdrawal primarily. And so we're facing sort of two problems at the same time, land sinking while water is rising. Correct. Water is rising due to um, the ocean and water expanding as it gets warmer due to climate change. And then the second effect of the rising seas is um, ice melt. Okay. All right. Um, Contributing factors, most basic sense. Ben? Well, you know, Mary Carson was right. Uh, So we've got in our area, there's sea level rise uh, globally which is primarily driven by ice melt. And I think Michael will be able to fill us in on the sides behind that. But uh, thermal expansion, so the warming warming of the oceans, uh, so they actually, the molecules are expanding in their volume. So that's a big uh, contributing factor. And then also ice melt from glaciers and also from the polar ice caps is is the other kind of major factor for global sea level rise. And at the local level, um, as Mary Carson mentioned, we are experiencing land subsidence here. driven by two main factors. One is uh, pumping of groundwater at a regional scale. Uh, so big, uh, you know, uh, paper mills, um, other major industrial uses of groundwater um, are pump, uh, pumping water out of the deep water aquifer. So that's why we're experiencing regional, um, within our area of here in Eastern Virginia subsidence, but also at the continental scale, we have um, what's called glacial isostatic adjustment. So after the <laughs> last, during the last ice age, there were big, um, you know, uh, glaciers that came that, that were further south than they are now. Glaciers weigh a lot. There are a lot of ice, and it's a, just really, really heavy, so they push down on the land. We were actually south of the glacier, so uh, we were artificially kind of raised in the, in up, upward of where we are now um, in elevation. But as those glaciers melt and recede, uh, those areas that were previously under all that ice, they start to come back up. That's so-called uplift. And uh, here we're starting to kind of sink back down to our normal state of being. So it's, it's kind of the double whammy there. And each of those is probably in the order of, I think, probably, you know, if I had to toss out a number, and I'm not a scientist, I'm a planner. <laughs> so I just use what the scientists tell me. But the uh, isostatic adjustment is roughly one millimeter a year. Mm-hmm. The uh, groundwater is somewhere between one and two millimeters a year. And then the uh, rest of the sea level rise is between two and three 
millimeters a year. So if we wanted to put this in sort of a simpler layman's term, a part of what we're experiencing is almost like when your foundation of your house settles. Correct. We're settling back down after something that happened a uh, very, very long time ago. Yeah. Understanding that correctly? Probably be a pretty good analogy there. Um, we are also at the uh, site level here in our region. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's been built on fill over time in mm. areas that were formerly creeks or, or um, you know, floodplains. And so there's some additional localized compaction. Um, but when we're talking about subsidence, we usually don't talk about that so much. We talk about the big regional scale problems. Uh, Michael, do you want to weigh in? Um, I think kind of everything was already echoed. Uh, I'll echo everything that's been said. The aesthetic rebound idea, I think a good analogy is putting a weight set on a mm -hmm. carpet and then removing said weight set and watching the carpet rebound. Mm -hmm. And so while we weren't covered by the Wisconsin uh, glacial period, um, we did have ice to our northwest, and as a consequence, we're kind of rebounding, as, as Ben said. And then the obvious uh, climate change tied to um, fossil fuel emissions, warming the lower atmosphere, the troposphere where we live, leading to the ocean expanding and rising as a consequence. But I think locally, we have a really complicated geologic as well as atmospheric oceanographic um, process. And globally, we are just one aspect in this bigger picture because we have sea level, while we're the second most vulnerable in the United States behind New Orleans in terms of sea level rise um, impacts, uh, globally, there are other locations that are experiencing similar issues that we are here in Hampton Roads. And certainly the global impact is something that we want to talk about in a little bit. I wanted to circle back to something that you mentioned, Ben. You're talking about the pumping of groundwater. Is that a contribution from, you know, a farm that has a well? Are we talking about residential or are we talking about industry and large commercial farms or mining or those sorts of things? Sure, it's mostly uh, from the bigger users um, because we're talking about the deep water aquifer. So a lot of the smaller uh, either residential wells or agricultural wells are not going to be pumping from that same aquifer for the most part. But it's really, it's an aggregate okay. occurrence, right? So it's not just one user, although we see some of that from the really, really big users like the Franklin Paper Mill or the West, mill, uh, West Point Paper uh, Mill up in um, at West Point. So... Um, from those particular users, you can see some noticeable um, subsidence in those areas, and that it has a regional effect. But there's a larger scale um, issue from just the thousands and thousands of small uh, groundwater users as well. Okay. And I will say there's uh, one other thing that I uh, forgot to say earlier um, that we're seeing an impact here that's, that's causing us to have greater than global sea level rise mm -hmm. is the contribution from the changing in the Gulf Stream. Mm -hmm. So as the Gulf Stream slows down, uh, we're seeing um, additional sea level rise here. It gets gets really complicated really fast, um, but basically as a result of warming uh, freshwater, or I'm sorry, melting freshwater glaciers and, and ice sheets up in the poles, um, that the dynamics of the, the overturning circulation in the ocean are resulting in that circulation slowing down, um, which causes additional water to be kind of move to the sides of those circulations. Kind of piling up. Yeah, yeah. it's getting closer to us. Which it I think. gets really complicated. Yeah. And there are some really good <laughs> sure. researchers at ODU that are doing some pioneering mm -hmm. research on this particular issue with the overturning circulation. But the, you know, the nutshell is for us, the, the basic thing for us is that 
Uh, there's this hot spot for sea level rise that goes all the way from what roughly Cape Hatteras all the way up to Boston. Right. And that is uh, some of the research and work that's being done at Old Dominion University. So if we were to coalesce or condense some of this, we're talking about that the land, for whatever reasons, tend to be sinking a bit, and then our water, because it is warming, is rising, and that's why we're starting to see at a very basic, basic level mm-hmm. Um, this is an issue. I've got that kind of correct? Correct. Correct. So in the last few years in the news and as a buzz phrase, we've sort of heard this two degrees increase. And is that avoidable? Is that a point of no return, this two degree C, two degree Celsius centigrade um, rise? How does that affect our shorelines here in the Hampton Roads area? Um, And what do you think about that? Is that a accurate number for us to look at, or is that just something that's trendy and easy to put on clickbait online and in our news? Um, It could be a little bit of both. I think the 1.5 C is the threshold by which you start seeing substantial impacts in terms of infrastructure and and large-scale impacts, not only here in Hampton Roads, but globally. And I think the concern is really that if we're looking at 1.5 C change or 2 degrees change, uh, we're committed to beyond that. Um, if we look at the amount of the residence time of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases, we're looking at long-term impacts. And so the concern is not, um, okay, 1.5 the next X years, but what is that change over the long term? And I think from a climatological perspective, yes, yeah, seas have ri- risen and seas has, have fallen. Um, and we've kind of lived in this kind of um, stable environment in the last you know, several hundred years leading to our development and, and our successes, um, but we've never seen or experienced sea level up to Richmond. It's mm-hmm. been up to Richmond. That's why it's called the fall line, and it's been out off the coast 100 miles or so. So mm-hmm. in in human times, we haven't experienced that, though, which is sometimes maybe difficult for people to get their heads around. All right, and that actually brings me to the next question that I wanted to have. And, Michael, if you want to maybe field this first, um, what do you say to those that want to think that all of this change is just attributable to a normal cycle of warming and cooling and that this is a natural rise in sea levels and that this isn't something that we're doing, this isn't something that we have to devote resources to because this is just a part of how our planet works? I mean, is that a statement that's um, excusing the issue? Is there a truth to that? Is it a dangerous thing for us to listen to? Is it hokum? Uh, A really good colleague uh, uses the analogy of flying an aircraft and going in an aircraft and looking to the left of the pilot and suggesting to him or her how to fly the plane. And so uh, as a climatologist, I recognize and understand and went to school to understand the natural variability in the climate system. We understand that there's ebb and flows and growths and, 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 um, and downturns in terms of global temperature, um, but the current changes that we're observing right now cannot be explained solely by those natural features. And so we uh, overlay and begin to understand the anthropogenic or human-caused factors because of fossil fuel emissions um, and other, other sources, and we can get a better picture of, of those changes. And so um, I think the, the difficulty with communicating the science of climate change is that um, the loudest voices are often in the minority. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the issue of climate change, and we're looking at 97 or 98 percent of scientists that are peer-reviewed, um, suggesting and showing that the changes are caused by humans, 
um, and you have a small minority kind of conveying the alternative, um, the narrative is clouded and communicating that can be difficult because of that. Uh, Mary Carson, Ben, your thoughts on this or what you would say to those points of view that say this is just a natural cycle and it's not something we should be up in arms about? I mean, I think that anecdotally, um, those people can come down and visit some neighborhoods in Norfolk where we have residents who have lived there for a number of years and whose grandparents, great-grandparents have lived in the, you know, the same homes and neighborhoods. And, you know, they can hear firsthand how um, the streets are flooding more, their neighborhoods are flooding more frequently. I mean, I, I think that in our area, um, you know, it's a lot more prevalent and pervasive, um, the impacts that are seen. And as far as like a larger, you know, cycle, uh, I think that if you look at some of the graphs that show, and maybe this isn't even worth saying in radio because obviously we can't show graphs, but um, right now we're experiencing a plateau where the cycle has been an up and a down and up and a down. Mm. Right now we're plateauing and there's no other plateau on our larger, um, you know, spanning hundreds of thousands of years, our level of sea level. So, you know, that plateau might signal that something is awry or, um, you know, a break in the cycle anyway. So, ben, yeah, I, uh, so ben, I'd love your point of view from a planner's point of view. You can go to the Slover Library, one of the wonderful libraries in our uh, Norfolk library system. You can look at photographs. You can look at artwork from a very long time ago that shows all of Waterside underwater and as a part of a place where boats would dock. I mean, so what about the voices that say, you've done this to yourself, you've drained the area, you've built on something that was always destined to be flooded. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't some sort of warming effect. It's just bad city planning and that that should have been taken into consideration. I mean, I think that that's probably a voice worth listening to or or is it... Uh, or is it not? Or what would you say to that point of view? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, there is some value in, in thinking about it from that perspective um, that we have uh, through our policies, not just in, in Hampton Roads, but across this country, uh, made a lot of questionable decisions when it comes to uh, developing our vulnerable areas, our floodplains. And so, you know, that's a discussion that's certainly worth having um, when it comes to stopping, you know, when we, I say, you know, we're talking about, we want to fix those kind of mistakes that we're already having or that we're consistently making right now in terms of promoting development areas where we shouldn't. So that is certainly, you know, something that we can talk about. Um, but I, I think what that certain for that perspective that you mentioned kind of fails to grasp is that when these areas were developed, uh, we were not experiencing the same frequency of flooding that we are now. And so that those sorts of impacts are being felt much more frequently than they were uh, when those areas were first developed. Um, and in, in our area, particularly, you know, we've been here for 400 plus years now in Hampton Roads. And we were not, we did not build in areas that we're seeing flooding every day 400 years ago, mm. or even 200 or 100 years ago. So that's a, that's a new factor that is just now begun, beginning to be understood. Um, and I would say, you know, as a way to piggyback off of something that Michael mentioned earlier, it's not so much that things are changing, it's the rate of change. Um, and as from a planning perspective, you know, if we have thousands of years to react to something, then, you know, it's pretty easy to do something uh, about it. But when you're talking about a scale of decades, uh, it becomes much more difficult and much more costly. Mm -hmm. 
Sure. This might be a nice chance for us to actually just define what do we mean by the measurement of sea level? I mean, where do you measure this is sea level? Is that a constant measurement across the globe? Is sea level the same in Norfolk as it is in Cyprus, as it is in, you know, any other area across the globe? How do we know that it's rising in one place when some data that says their sea levels are dropping? How do we even measure measure this? That's a that's a great question. And I would say there are, you know, kind of two ways, right? So we measure uh, sea level uh, through satellite altimetry. So that's one way of getting a kind of a global average of what sea level is, or at least a, a large regional average within the, like, over the oceans or in the oceans. But at the local level, we use things like tide gauges to measure what we call uh, relative sea level change. And so you're right. In some areas, um, say around uh, Alaska, for example, sea level is actually dropping there. Uh, and that's actually a result of the, the glacial changes that we had discussed earlier, mm-hmm. um, that as a result, uh, those areas are actually rising. The land is actually rising faster than the global sea level is, is, in, is increasing as well. So, so we have um, you know, a, in a relative decline in sea level there, whereas here we have a relative increase in sea level, and we measure that with tide stations. Um, in the United States, uh, there are some areas that have had tide stations in, in operation for 150 years or so. Baltimore, I think, is one that's been around for a long time. Uh, the Battery in New York City has been around. It's one of the longest uh, records uh, that we have here. Um, Norfolk, there's been a, a gauge here in operation since the late 1920s. And so we were able to precisely measure um, the rate of change in sea level here, at least the historic rate. Um, and I think the long term is about, what about 4.5 millimeters per year, or roughly 1.5 feet mm-hmm. over a 100-year period here. Certainly in the Hampton Roads area and other beachfront communities, we hear a lot about sea level rise, um, and perhaps we're able to actually see it in a more impactful or meaningful way. Um, but what are the day-to-day impacts of sea level rise to people who don't have waterfront property? Right. So, uh, Michael, Mary Carson, what do you say to our listeners that live in the Plains states or in mountainous regions about why they should care about sea level rise on a very real day to day human level, not just as a grand overarching idea? Well, I think that for the, uh, the Plains states and even for the western part of Virginia, I think that a lot of at the General Assembly level, we see a lot of representatives from the western part of Virginia saying things like, you know, we aren't experiencing sea level rise. Why should we finance, you know, adaptation or mitigation in Hampton Roads? Or why are there so many bills that are introduced to talk about the problem of sea level rise or recurrent flooding in Hampton Roads? And what I would say to them is the same as I would say to someone in the Plains states. Um, you know, the economies are so intertwined, uh, you know, in Virginia, of course, there's so much, um, I think it's 10% of our GDP comes from the Port of Virginia. And so if the port is unable to um, operate on a daily basis, then that is a huge, huge impact to just our state's economy. It's no longer a regional problem. Um, You know, when it floods in low-lying areas or areas susceptible to sea level rise, i.e. our region, roads close, cars cannot get through, and so people can't go to work. The naval station closes. Um, Schools close. You know, we have flood days instead of snow days 
here in Norfolk, especially, and I'm sure in other cities in Hampton Roads. And so, you know, the impact is that every economy is is linked together. And so if some businesses aren't able to operate, then that will have a ripple effect on others. And so, you know, the impact is clear from a financial standpoint if the port is no longer active and for the plain states, if our Navy, the naval base in Norfolk, the largest naval base in the world, is unable to operate and to do its job properly, then, you know, our defenses are called into question. And um, that, of course, can have an impact to everyone in the United States. Okay, but isn't this just another way for some people, um, and perhaps those with a more liberal-leaning point of view, to talk about climate change, to backdoor or shoehorn in this conversation about global warming and how this is all our fault? I mean, isn't this just another way of trying to have a conversation that's so mired by partisan politics? Sea level rise and flooding in, in our region is bipartisan. The problem is no longer a partisan issue. So we aren't seeing that as an issue in our General Assembly really anymore. There's some parts of the state that, um, you know, there's a little bit of fear of the of federal government, of government overstepping. Um, but for the most part, you know, it's no longer a political issue because everybody's roads are flooding and everyone is experiencing losses. It's not like a Democrat's home is flooded while a Republican's home isn't. That is not the case. Water knows no political or jurisdictional boundaries, and that is the problem. All right. Uh, other voices on that? I mean, what do we say to our uh, conservative friends that say you're just looking for another way to whine about climate change? Um, I think Mary Carson said it well in terms of these issues are um, independent of political affiliation and the sun's going to come up whether your head is in the sand or not. Uh, so what is it that the three of you are seeing from other countries as far as planning for and dealing with sea level rise? For example, I know that in the Netherlands, in Rotterdam, they're taking approach of let's plan for this inevitability as opposed to trying to reverse slow or stop. Well, I think the Netherlands, um, you know, it's a, it's a great case study for us to be able to look at. Um, there are a lot of lessons that we can draw from there, but I think it's also uh, would be wise of us to not try to do a direct comparison because we are in, in very different places, our countries. Well, what is the difference yeah. of places? I mean, well, we're on the you know, we're I on think, the coast. We have a strong economy. Sure. I, so, what are those differences? Are they purely political differences? Are they geological differences? I, I think um, you know the biggest differences. You know, from a physical perspective, that a good portion, if not the majority, of the Netherlands is actually below sea level. So for them, dealing with rising waters is an existential issue. If they don't, they're not going to be here any longer. Mm -hmm. Whereas for us, it's not quite that, that level of challenge. It's difficult, and it's something, you know, for us, um, you know, we certainly don't want to retreat from areas if we don't have to. Uh, but for, for their country, you know, if, if, you know, there's nowhere to retreat from except for Germany. <laughs> well, I also think that in our culture, we have revered coastal homes. It's been a sign of status, right? So to live near the water, to have a boat and a dock has been, you know, a real dream of people and a sign of affluence or success. Um, and, and in the Netherlands, I know that, you know, with the exception of the cities where the water is just there and there's no choice but to live near, on it, next to it, whatever, um, in the rural areas, people in the Netherlands don't want to live where they can see the water because they are fearful of it. And in our mindset, we have a love affair with water. 
And in Hampton Roads, I mean, we all experience that love affair in different varying degrees. And so there's also, you know, just the way that we've done planning and the way that we have decided to settle. So, you know, that's a big difference, I think. And specific legislation or specific policies or specific actions that you've seen from other countries around the world that are combating this in what you would consider to be an effective, progressive way, whether or not it would be easy, what are you seeing from them that you, if you had your druthers, would emulate in Hampton Roads or just nationally? So I think, um, you know, one of the the best lessons I think that we can take from the Netherlands um, is this idea that when you're dealing with, with water management, you can add value to your community at the same time that you're trying to keep the water out. So, so what's the specific thing as a city planner that you would want to do to accomplish that goal if you had sure. unlimited resources or funding? So, for example, when you're putting in place, um, you know, a, like a flood control structure, for example, maybe you can add in a recreational component. Or you could add in, um, you know, commercial development at the same time that you're, you're putting in place either a wall or, you know, a series of pumps. You can um, carve out channels for floodplains to flow through well, during uh, times of, of high water, uh, that during uh, less, you know, uh, calamitous times or, or uh, recreational areas uh, for people to walk in or for uh, wildlife management. Um, so there are, are a lot of ways that you can do, you can achieve um, what we refer to as multiple benefits when you're talking about these infrastructure projects. They don't have to be a, you know, a, a one topic solution. They can address multiple problems. I also think that, you know, when you're thinking about um, what are some planning decisions that other people are making, I mean, I feel like we have a lot to learn from some of our other states. Um, Such as? So California, for example, has um, dealt with the financing of mitigation and adaptation in a much more um, head-on way. So, for example, they are building into certain areas, so this is the Bay Area, um, certain districts will have a special tax that's levied to help finance adaptation structures and mitigation actions. And so, you know, the same is being done in levy districts. So it's just the same thing as creating like a special district. So, um, you know, there'd be a levy authority or a flood district authority. You know, states are, um, are financing in a much more creative way than I think we are in our region. Um, you know, the, the issue of dealing with and paying for sea level rise adaptation is uh, crippling, really. I mean, I think Mayor Frame said that for Norfolk, um, it would be a $1 billion down payment on the problem. And so how can you even begin to manage expectations when you're talking about how to actually mitigate? And so I would just say that, you know, we're really not very progressive. We're starting to get there in the way that we're actually going to pay for this work to occur. I think those were the uh, words of former Norfolk Mayor Paul Frame last year when he was asked about the issue. Michael, is there any real hope to stop or reverse or to even slow sea level rise without major national and multinational legislative changes? I think the uh, reaction is often reactionary as opposed to proactive. And I think MC kind of just illustrated kind of those ideas is some states are taking a heads-on, some countries are taking heads-on initiatives, uh, whether that's because their livelihoods depend on it or because they're uh, 
trained to listen to their scientists, I'm not sure. But um, when you have the overwhelming evidence that climate change is happening now, not some distance thing in the future, and sea level rise is happening now, impacting us now, and, and flooding us now, um, I think it takes us to come to an agreement that this is the reality and to start addressing the issue head on. I think that's a better way of tackling some of these issues because if you wait until 2020, 2030, 2040, when the rate of sea level rise is going to potentially increase substantially, um, at that point you're, you're behind the eight ball in many ways. So um, I don't know if the answer to your question is to, <laughs> is it stopped? It's a good way to getting around it perhaps. Um, the, the rate of change, I don't want to say we're committed at 1.5 C, um, but it's not looking, not looking good at this point in time. So that takes us into this idea. Are there actions from any of you? Are there actions that the individual can take in their lives, uh, you know, in their workaday lives to make a measurable difference with this issue? Uh, are there, and if they are, what are they? I think that's one of the difficulty. Um, one of the difficulties with this this issue is that when we communicate the realities of climate change and the scientific consensus of climate change, and you go on and on, um, it often becomes um, conveyed as hopeless and that the world is uh, there's no hope and it's and I don't I don't buy into that in any way, shape, or form. I think uh, change comes slowly. Uh, change comes uh, with work. And change comes with um, sitting down and, and getting dirty. And so I, I try to communicate to my students that this issue is not hopeless in any way, shape, or form, and it's not settled in terms of what we can do to address, mitigate, and adapt to the issue of climate change and sea level rise. Um, I think some students get it and others still don't get it, and that's all right. I think playing the seeds is important. Um, and I think small changes, uh, whether it be lifestyle, whether it be food choice, whether it be consumeristic um, um, choice, um, being aware and alert and educating and having com conversations with people um, because I can communicate the issue of climate change and if I communicate that to 30 students and they go home and communicate that to 30 more people and you can get this snowball effect and I think that's where we're at on the verge of uh, right now in the political um, climate is a wave uh, regarding this issue is, is forthcoming, no pun intended perhaps. Mary Carson, uh, actionable steps that the individual can make? Um, I would just say that, you know, the problem of adaptation to sea level rise to recurrent flooding uh, is falling on local governments. And so I would urge individuals to be informed, to be an active member of their community and of their locality, and to be aware of what citizen boards are doing as far as assisting um, in developing or not developing our shorelines. Um, so, you know, I feel like Local governments are saddled with this problem, and if you want to actual, actually make a, you know, a, a real difference in whether or not a community is deciding to build on a shoreline versus having that shoreline um, return to its natural state or um, turn to its new natural state, so um, helping to incentivize wetlands creation, shoreline stabilization that's natural to allow our shoreline to move forward into our community rather than holding it back with an artificial structure. Um, you know, those are the types of decisions that our local governments are making. And so um, attend wetlands board, attend CBPA's Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act board meetings or board um, decisions 
making meetings and, you know, speak up. Uh, it's your community. You're living in it. You're paying your tax dollars um, to benefit from, you know, the services that are provided to you. And uh, just don't be afraid to get involved. And real quickly, Mary Carson, can you define for us again exactly what recurrent flooding is? Yes. So recurrent flooding is um, basically the daily impacts that we in Hampton Roads are seeing for, of sea level rise. So flooding in a street um, or in a yard where um, it's occurring with the tides and let's say that a river or a creek is overflowing the banks that usually contain it and flooding where it shouldn't flood in a recurrent fashion. So more than it has in the past and um, definitely often. Gotcha. Very good. Thank you very much. And then, uh, Ben, the steps that a person can take that will matter on this issue. Sure. Well, you know, I think Mary Carson pointed out a, a lot of steps that individuals can take in participating in the decisions their communities make. You know, every community has a comprehensive plan for how that's supposed to guide how it develops in the future. And there's a lot that look, that individuals can do to contribute to that vision. And when we're talking about sea level rise adaptation, what our communities look like is still up for debate. Mm -hmm. And so individuals can certainly take part in that process. I think at an individual level, you know, knowing your risk as a homeowner, as a renter, as a resident, understand, you know, where how your your neighborhood is vulnerable, how your house might be vulnerable, and Factoring that into not only your decisions on whether or not to, say, buy in an area, but certainly, you know, how to retrofit your house, for example. You can raise your utilities. Your, you can raise your air conditioning unit or your, your condenser. Um, you can learn, you know, not to park in certain areas. You know, you can contribute that way by being an informed citizen and understanding, you know, how you at an individual level are vulnerable to flooding. All right. And lastly, we're going to close this episode again with our 30-second elevator rant. So you have 30 seconds to tell us exactly what do you say to a person who thinks that they aren't affected by sea level rise because they can't see it and that an individual wouldn't be able to make any real difference anyway. All right. So, Ben, you have 30 seconds. Well, I would say everyone in our community in Hampton Roads is affected by sea level rise, whether or not they live on the water that our, our businesses are affected, our roadways are affected, and those decisions about how to spend our community resources are going to be, you know, uh, we're going to be dealing with, with sea level rise and flooding um, at the regional level, at the local level. And so even if you aren't personally affected by it, you know, you're, at least you are, your taxes are going towards, towards dealing with it. All right. And Michael, your 30 seconds to that person? I think the issue is scale from a geographic perspective, is that um, the issue of climate change and sea level rise in particular um, don't just impact Norfolk or Hampton Roads or Virginia or the United States. It is a global issue. And so if you buy food, um, somewhere not in your backyard, you might be impacted by these issues um, in terms of food or transportation or depart uh, geopolitics, as, as Ben said, uh, with Department of Defense really interested in these issues. Okay, Mary Carson, you have the final word on this, 30 seconds. Um, I agree with what everybody has just said, and I would just urge everyone to understand that even if they're property is not in a flood zone, that they are still able to experience risk from flooding. And so we encourage everybody to carry flood insurance and to be aware of where it floods and why it floods in your neighborhood and in your workplace. And then also we, we would just encourage our shorelines to look as natural as possible. And so wetland 
restabilization, wetland creation, and shoreline, um, green shorelines is, is what we're all about. So get involved in your community. Well, folks, you've done it again. You've taken your Smart Pill, and you're better for it. Smart Pill is brought to you by the WHRO Emerging Leaders Board, a group of millennial professionals in their 20s and 30s who believe in the power of public media to make their voices heard. The podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Emerging Talks event series, bringing critical information and important conversations to people in Hampton Roads and across the country. The podcast is produced by Keith Saunders and Ryan McIntyre and recorded at WHRO Norfolk. Sound recording and technical assistance by Victor Bowen. Special thanks to WHRO Director of Community Engagement, Nancy Rogan, the WHRO Marketing Department, the Brock Environmental Center, and thank you to Global Shapers for helping us put together this conversation. You can find out more about them at NorfolkGlobalShapers.com. On behalf of the Emerging Leaders Board, I'm your host, Ryan McIntyre, and I'll talk to you again when it's time to take your smart pill.